0: Good morning, folks. Thank you for joining and welcome to this episode of the Jackson Lucas Impact Real Estate Podcast. Today, we have a really special guest. Her name is Helen Huang, and I have known Helen for many, many, many years. She is the head of institutional investment sales at Meridian Investment Sales. She co heads the think tank dedicated to ESG at ULI, and she is just such a wonderful human being. I mean, I I cannot begin to tell you her energy, her grit, her passion. When you stop and you listen to some of the nuggets that she's going to offer to you in this in this little podcast, you will um, greatly enjoy them. I'd like to say one thing, which is Helen is a first generation college student, and I think you'll pick up on her grit, her energy, and I think you'll also find endearing how wonderful her father and parents have been through this journey of her life. So thank you for joining us. I'd also like to give a shout out to our Jackson Lucas September Secondaries Month and invite each and every one of you to join us for our webinar on September 27th. Um, Please see our LinkedIn, either Jackson Lucas, uh, myself, Lisa Flicker, or Chris Papa's LinkedIn and sign up for the webinar. We can't wait to see you there. Thanks and have a good day. Hello, Helen. Welcome to the Jackson Lucas Impact Real Estate Podcast. We're very excited to have you on today. How are you doing today?
1: Good, good. Thank you so much for having having me. Um, I'm so used to saying having us because I'm always with my team, but (laughs) uh, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Um, Let's get this rolling.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Helen, you are somebody that I have known for many years, not only because of the incredible work that you do, but because of the incredible work that you do also through ULI and I've always sure. been extremely impressed with your involvement. And Thank you. Yeah, and I'm, I'm hoping we're going to dig into all of that, yes. but I'd love to just start out learning a little bit about how you got into real estate.
1: Yeah, so I'll give you a little bit of, I have an interesting background. Um, so I grew up in Korea until I was 14 in a small village in a province called gyeonggi and so i pretty much grew up there my entire life until 14. like i'd never been on a plane never been on a boat like never traveled anywhere i was pretty much that was pretty much my world for 14 years yeah (laughs) it was a household of like 50 households (laughs) yeah 50 families that's it and then my dad wanted a better life like he was a livestock broker at the time amongst other things and he really wanted a better life for us because at that time this is in 1989 Um, you can, you know, it was very, very difficult for you to break through the socioeconomic class, no matter how hard you worked, especially in a farmland. And he wanted a better life for us. He had his uh, family here in the U S and in Canada, and they applied for visa for us. And we moved the entire family moved over here in 1989. We moved to, um, a very, very crowded city called West New York, New Jersey. Which is which is one of the most densely populated cities in the country. So imagine me, a little farm girl, like (laughs) you know, a farm teenager, rather, going into a city where you see so many people and they're all so different, speaking different languages, and you know, it was a pretty big shock when we moved here. Um, So amazing if you could have
0: um, recorded your thoughts at the time. That would have been an incredible thing to to hear today I
1: remember it like it was yesterday and it's so funny because that moment in time was such a special time right because it was so unique because you didn't you were in a completely new place and I've been just sort of like you know in my little world in Korea the whole time so it was kind of a shocking thing but also you're like your survival instinct also kicks in because you're you're Unable to communicate, and you know you have to go into high school, you have to apply to college, and a lot of important things in life are about to happen, and I felt that I had no control over it because of this language barrier, and I felt this need to quickly assimilate, to learn, to adapt quickly. Um, You know, I really wanted to move to like Fort Lee, New Jersey. This is where my uncle and my cousins lived because they're all Koreans over there. And I was like, oh, my God, this would be so ideal if I can slowly transition into American life, American living with my fellow Koreans there. But my my dad, I think this was actually a spin. I don't think that this was I mean, it probably was his motivation as well. But he said that he didn't want us to live in a Korean neighborhood. He wanted us to assimilate. And transition as quickly as possible, and that was going to be done by moving to West New York, which happened to have the cheapest rent of six hundred dollars for a two bedroom apartment for the five of us. But that was his spin, you know. That was, (laughs) and it, it was actually true because we it was it was survival. We if we didn't assimilate if we didn't learn then we were not going to be able to communicate with everybody and that was going to be a big problem for us right so within the first year I was able to have conversations in English and within the second year so when I went into high school um, so I I went to eighth grade first and took ESL and my ESL teacher was teaching it in Spanish so which made it (laughs) which made it double double difficult Um, and then I went into high school and I, and I started transitional English. And by the time I graduated, I was taking honors English. So the learning curve was very steep, it was very quick, but I really do feel like at that time, I had this, you know, superwoman power, <laughs> you know, I was able to, I think it, that was the only point in time when I felt like I had photographic memory. So I was able to memorize everything just yeah by the way I, I don't do that anymore I don't have that anymore but at that time I was able to absorb English and language I, I was number one in class for Spanish when I was really? learning English yeah. so so language was definitely um a, you know something that I had become very good at at that particular time if I had to learn new language right now I think I'll have some struggles <laughs> so um and then you know I wanted to really become a doctor since I was really young so as soon as I turned 16 in high school I got my license to become an EMT so I got uh, I got certified and I became an EMT I used to ride ambulances bring you know go to these um you know accident sites uh, bring and you can papers. speak to them in three
0: languages so that was great
1: <laughs> Right, exactly, exactly. Um, and I was doing this in West New York, which was very like you know an area that really needed more volunteers, um, because you know there were there were not really good hospital systems there at the time. So I really enjoyed that. So I and then I got into Cornell, and this is mind you, I didn't know anything about college. Like I didn't know which college I had to apply to. I didn't really know anything about anything. You know, in Korea, you get tested. And you apply to the school you want to get into, you get tested and you get in or you don't get in. If you don't get in, you have to repeat your senior year in high school. That's how it happened. So I didn't even know the system here. So I have um, my best friend from high school, Adolfo, He his dream school was Cornell. So he told me, just apply to the schools that I apply to. <laughs> and so, so I ended up applying to like four schools and the only two schools where I had to pay like a $50 admission um application fee was cornell and another school i don't remember which but like that's how poor we were at the time like we really couldn't afford to apply to many schools at the time and 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 thankfully i got into cornell and into arts and sci and then i majored in chemistry Um, and i thought that's what i was going to do until my second semester of junior year my dad called me and said i you know he said i know you're really looking to become a doctor And I respect that. But you realize we have no money to send you to school, you know. (laughs) So He said, it's fine if you want to apply after, like if you want to make some money and then go after it, feel free to do that. But we really can't support you. We have, you know, your sister's coming, your brother's coming, you know, like you have two more coming into the college field. So we really cannot afford to pay for that. So that's when I transferred out of Arts and Sci and went into the hotel school to study finance. And by the way, real estate was something that my dad and I picked out on this particular phone call where he was like, no money, no dinero for hospital, like, you know, medical medical school. And you got to go find something else. So we're like, well, what should we what should we do? Like, what should I do, you know, for several years? And we just literally just picked it out of a hat. Like, how about real estate? That seems like something I could dive into quickly, make quick money and get out and go back to the it micro must, field.
0: I can do this and then get out. I'm exactly,
1: sure. exactly. So,
0: um,
1: and, then, and then after graduating from college, so I did my, I did like, I think, internship at Tishman Spire Properties, which was really great. Um, I did an internship with Boyd Gaming and Mirage Resorts uh, for the Borgata uh, Resort Development. And then after graduating from college, I started at Cushman and Wakefield. And the decision to join Cushman wasn't that easy because I had other offers. By the way, for six months, I could not find a job. So this is is in 1999, right? So the market was pretty good. And all of my friends were employed. And I was the only person who was struggling to find a job. And I was like, "What's wrong with me? What's happening?" And at the time, you're trying to be relaxed, but you really can't because you're all these unknowns, and you feel this, you know, this uh, panic. Um, I gotta find something right away. I gotta find something right away. And you know, my dad was like, "You have all the time for the rest of your life to work. You just need to relax." And and as soon as I relaxed, I got like three offers. You know, that sounds incredible. By the (laughs) Uh, way, yeah, 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 he is. which will yeah, which we'll talk about. And basically, I had offers from different fields of real estate, and I think at the time, cushman offered me like forty thousand dollars, and then um my my top choice offered me like sixty thousand, and that's twenty thousand dollar difference, fifty percent difference, right? And which was a huge difference for me. And I told my dad, I'm gonna go with 60 k. And he said, Why, why? Was like, well, it's so different. Twenty thousand like imagine what twenty thousand dollars can do for us.
0: Right. And,
1: and and by the way, it's not like we were so abundant like that, we didn't need it. We really, really needed this money. You know, this is when my mom was a manicurist, you know, my dad was doing um all kinds of odd jobs. He was working at the diamond district, he was like doing car salesman, he did like physical therapy, <laughs> he did like cold calling, he did so many different things to allow us to have this life and allow us to be educated here. And so that 20K was actually a very meaningful number. And he told me, it's okay, go wherever you're gonna have more opportunity. So we thought long about it. And then I chose Cushman and Wakefield. I started my career in the appraisal side. I actually got admitted through Cushman through a program called Career Development Program, where I think there were like 30 of us at the time in 1999, and where we were able to rotate through various divisions of Cushman and Wakefield, and you were basically matched with whoever you thought were best, right? So we had various divisions. My first stop was appraisal, and and I really liked it because it was very analytical, um, and I love numbers and chemistry. (laughs) That was like my thing. And they actually asked me, like, do you want to go into brokerage? And I was like, no, 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 thank you. That's kind of like my notion of broker at the time was like a, like an old car salesman, you know, the truth. Right. and you I, and
0: I, hard to build up all of the, you know, these credentials. And you're like, no, I'm right.
1: Yeah. Like, and, and I also wanted to, like before I started selling something, I feel like I had to know something. I, I felt like I, w- I, w- I was definitely um, not as knowledgeable about the basics of real estate at the time, because I was so young, but I also didn't have the best image of what a broker is, to be perfectly honest. And so there were 30 some odd of us at the career development program. um, And everybody but two of us chose to become brokers, junior brokers, because that's where the money is. Right. Right. And then they're like, Helen, are you sure? I was like, I am 100 percent certain that that's not what I want to (laughs) do. So I did appraisal for two, two and a half years. I worked for. my biggest mentor at the time, Eric Lewis, and also Dan Lesser doing general appraisals and hospitality appraisals as well. Oh, um, I didn't know you were
0: Dan. Dan's a friend. He's oh, a yeah.
1: Friend. yeah, yeah. Dan's great. That is fantastic. Um, we still have really great relationship. And and then, and, and, you know, after two and a half years, I got certified. I'm thinking this is where I retire. And then one of my colleagues was actually interviewing with investment sales division at Cushman and Wakefield at the time. And that's when Scott Latham and John Kaplan who were my, my old bosses. They came from CBRE to join Cushman and Wakefield. And my, my colleague, Chris Cazaza went to interview with them. And, and I was like, well, how did the interview go? He said, you know, I think it was okay, but like, it wasn't for me. But the whole time I was thinking, this is for you. And I said, really? He goes, in fact, I told them about you and they're really dying to meet you. So I want <laughs> you to go upstairs right now and say hi. I was like, what? This is like, I'm not even looking for a job. I don't have my resume or I'm not doing anything. So he's like, just go upstairs you know and say
0: hi. That story right there is yeah. like this is where you were headed, regardless of whether you knew it or not.
1: I suppose so. So. And I was kind of dumbfounded. And so I went upstairs to say hi to Scott Latham and John Kaplan. And they hired me. They hired me. And I, and I said, I don't even know if I want this. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they were kind of surprised because, you know, I think everybody else would have been like, oh, this is, the, this is the chance of a lifetime. I'm jumping on. And here I am. I'm going, I don't know if I want it. I'm sorry. Like, can I think about this? And then they refer me to a bunch of people. You should talk to this person and that person. Like, you should definitely, you know, come over. So ultimately, I spent the next two months <clears throat> interviewing a new junior appraiser, training him, and then moving over after two months um, to join the investment sales.
0: Well, I feel like that's good because foundationally, you did so much homework to know that yeah. this is this is... You know, I do think there are a lot of people who just jump into any opportunity they get. And that's when people wind up, you know, pinging off the sides a lot. So the thoughtfulness, I think, is incredible.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was definitely not what I expected, right? Because it was was it sort sort of fell on. um, So the first year that I went there, I actually took a pay cut to go over there because I was actually making very good money in appraisal. And people don't know this. Appraisers make really good money. and I knew that but you know I still remember what my dad told me go for the potential not for what you're making today so I went over there I worked really hard I worked my ass off I was the first one in always last one out Um, except for Tuesdays and Thursdays actually because I have Bible study and you know I was always very committed to that from from 1999 on so Scott and John were very, very lenient and very, very gracious to allow me to attend that every single, every single time. And he, they, they never, like, they never helped me. Say, like, can you finish this or that? So they were very, very, they were very kind. Um, and I learned tremendously. And there was, you know, think about, so when I joined, it was 2020, 2002. And then initially it was kind of slow. We were pitching a lot of deals, but not winning them, or there were not as many pitches. I was very busy. But the active deals were sort of limited, and then a couple years later, the floodgates opened. It's it was crazy. The amount of volume that we saw at the time is something that we will probably never see again. Because whatever you listed, you sold, right? So we did incredible number of deals, and it. I think. And you're like,
0: yes, I made the right decision. <laughs> only
1: then, only then I knew, right? Only several years later, I knew that I made the right choice, but. What was also incredible was just to be around Scott and John, and later on Richard Baxter and Ron Cohen joined the team as well. And seeing the four of them, and they had such different styles of brokerage, all of them, and they were all so brilliant and incredible in their own different ways. And being able to be exposed to that type of variety, and being mentored that way was really a really amazing experience. Not only learning the technical stuff, but also the the art of brokerage. So that was huge. And then I think in 2008, our team was the highest gross producing team in history of Cushman Wakefield, in history of Cushman Wakefield. So that wow. was a very proud moment for us. Yes, yes, yes. We made history.
0: <laughs> that That's a, a pretty big deal, given I'm sure you've had some pretty big numbers before
1: that. So well, think about also leasing brokers, how much commissions they make and the fact that we were the biggest at that time tells you something you know it was incredible times and then um and then 2009 happened and then then it totally stopped and um and i but i didn't want to stop i didn't want to stop because of the market stopped so i wanted to continue to do things and i actually was going to be a professor at NYU so, I was working on that on the side, you know, to do that part time. I was day trading. <laughs> and Scott and John well, knew this, <laughs> but I was also day trading. And then the other thing I was doing is I was, I was cultivating international investor relationships. So, for example, you know, I went to Korea with John Kaplan, coordinated uh, real estate seminars with all the major institutional investors in Korea. Um, and so that was being done in 2009. Come now. Here's the history of real estate. This is where the real estate market's headed. You should come right now. Like, so we were doing that sort of all over the world. So I think a lot of people wanted to take off and I stayed and I kept at it at that time, which was really difficult. And then the market came back in 2010, 11, you know? Well, there's a, a
0: line in Hamilton where they say, immigrants, we get the job done. Yeah. And I do I wholeheartedly believe that grit, that passion. It's very easy when the market is down to say, oh, nothing's getting done, I'll kind of just sit around. But being creative and thinking outside of the box, I mean, that's amazing.
1: Yes, yes, that was really, really fun. And um, I was also, and this is a question I get a lot from my mentees, I was also Mm -hmm. networking like crazy. So I have um, a networking buddy, Kevin Lillis, who's now in Texas, um, he he and I used to co-host a lot of events. And we used to do like Hold'em, which was a huge thing at the time. And we got sponsored by hotels so we can play Hold'em at their hotel and get free bar service, open bar, free food, you know. Um, so we used to do that. What a great to, yes. I know. And we used to do also Muay Thai kickboxing. We used to buy a whole section in front, invite our clients over and go watch boxing together. Things like that. So we were doing that, um, and then when 2010 happened, our team, um, you know, decided to move to JLL because this was like a time where things were kind of iffy in the market. We didn't know what was going on, and and Scott and Richie and those guys felt that moving to JLL will be a good move. I personally did not want to go, but of course, where my bosses go, I'll go with them. Right? So so I was I was packing my stuff. They left. And the next day, as we were packing our things, I got called into Arthur Moranti's office. And Arthur Moranti and Bruce Mosler at Cushman and Wakefield, and they said, where are you wow. going? I <laughs> said, well, I'm going with Scott and John. And they said, why? I was like, well, where else am I going to go? You know? And they said, we really want you to stay and build a new team. Now, mind you, this is at a time where, like, the investment sales was say uh, investment sales world was very limited it's very narrow there were like four teams and that's it you couldn't start a new team you couldn't be a new guy like a new gal you can't you couldn't do that right so it sounded to me like what is he talking about like what do you mean start a new investment sales team? That sounds like a crazy idea. And it sounds like you're super desperate, which they were probably. Right, the yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they also believed in me, which which I was really flattered by. But I basically told them without really thinking deeply about it, I said, no, thank you. I'm really going over there. Um, and I came back home and you know, I told my dad, like, you wouldn't believe what happened. And I told him about it. And he's like, why did you say no? Why did you say no to the opportunity? And I said, well, because that would be a betrayal to, to my bosses. And loyalty is very important to me and I wanna be loyal. And he said, yes, that's very important. But in a decision like this, there are more important things that you have to think about. Like you can't make a very critical decision like this solely based on loyalty and loyalty alone. There are other things that you have to think about and you have to prioritize what's most important. In this case, the most important thing is your life experience. Think about what you'll experience when you, you know, if you went with them to jail out and the life you will lead and the experiences you will have there versus the experience you will have here, you know, and, and I said, well, I'm very afraid of failure because this hasn't been really done. There are four guys and four gals and, you know, um, four teams that led and dominated the investment sales market, and I just didn't think that was something I could do. And he said, that's also not the top priority, because whatever you learn, it's going to be way, way, way more worthy than, than whatever, you, however you're going to feel if you didn't, if the business didn't succeed. And as long as you, your life is successful, and that you're going to enrich yourself through more experiences, then that's going to be much, much better in the long haul than you experiencing this and then, you know, fearing that you're never going to make it. Like you just, you just have to go with it. You have to go with it. You have to experience it. So the next day I'm on. I, like and- I should be a career coach. I mean,
0: I'm, I'm working with some of my candidates. That's incredible. And I feel like this advice is just, it's, it, it stands the test of time, right? Like yeah. it's loyalty to people, but it's also loyalty to yourself.
1: Yeah, that's right, that's right. And then thinking sort of outside the career, it's about life more than the career, right? It's about right. your you more than who you are in this industry. So I, that resonated with me. So the next day I went back to Arthur and Bruce and said, okay, I'll do it, <laughs> I'll do it. And they were like, we're so glad. Of course, it wasn't easy. Like when, we, when I was announced, well, before the announcement actually, I had to call Scott and John, right? 'cause oh, that I must have, have to be- deliver the news. And I, yeah, I told them please do not do any PR until I speak to them in person. And I wanna deliver this news in person. Because I have to do this in a really respectful way. So I met with them at Hillstone <laughs> and <laughs> and I and I went there with Karen Wiedemann, who was also working for Scott and John at the, Scott and John at that time, but decided to stay with me at Cushman and Wakefield. So she's been with me for now 20 20 someone years you know so so she wow. came with me to deliver the news and i saw them and i just broke down and that was the probably the first time and the last time i cried at work and i said i am very sorry but this is an opportunity that i can't really give up and i i'm sure if you are in my position you will understand it might take some time for you to understand but but this is this is what i am choosing to do and but none of it really came out the way I thought because I was crying and it was just delirious. And and Karen was like, I think what she's trying to tell you is that she's staying at Cushman. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, they they were look, it was, I'm sure it was a shocker. And I think I sort of put myself in their position. If let's say, you know, my my colleagues like Brian Chapa or Yasmin Karatpe, if they came to me and said, Hey, I'm starting my own team. I, like I, I kind of think about that you know like yeah I, I will see how shocking that would be and the feeling that I would feel <laughs> you know a little bit of anger probably <laughs> you know
0: It's the same thing, right? yeah
1: yeah so but, but they were very gracious and you know I actually just had dinner and lunch with Scott and John um and they're still my mentors. They're incredible people, and I'm so thankful to have them by my side still. And I still text them and email them all the time. <laughs> In fact, they actually um, Scott referred me um, our colleague Ian Schoenfeld, who joined us several years ago, and he used to work for me. But he's great. You should you should hire him. And I hired him, and he's great. You know, so so they've been they've been so great. But so that was a really tough part. But also dealing with sort of the external factors like people within Cushman and Wakefield and outside of Cushman and Wakefield were very much a naysayer of me stepping into this spot um, and a lot of folks within Cushman at the time were saying like why does she deserve this right why does she deserve it and there were other people who are more than capable of taking that position and I didn't disagree because I haven't really proven myself and it was a tough time at Cushman because and this, this huge team had just left and now they're stuck with me at the time and they feel like, oh no, this is not good for the company. So there was a lot of scrutiny. I'm going to say, what do you think they saw in you that made them
0: believe that you would be able to do this? Because I, a lot of people often ask me, how do I know when I'm ready to take the next step or how do I know if, I, and so I'm wondering yeah. if there is something that you could think of that
1: No, that's a great question. Maybe that's who you were, but... I mean, I personally don't think I was ready, but I don't think anybody is truly ready when they're making the next step. I think there's always this um, jump you have to make, right? There's no ground there. You're not stepping on anything. You just have to sort of jump and you hope that you land. Um, I felt like technically I was very savvy. I think I was a good broker, but to be able to lead a team it's, a, it's something very different you gotta like you gotta just do it and be able to grow and know that you're going to be not so great in the beginning but will be fantastic later like that's just the way everything comes like when I speak English right like when I was learning English for the first time everybody was asking me like excuse me I don't understand can you please repeat yourself can you please say that again and I really hated hearing that but if you don't go through thousands of those you're just never gonna speak. English well, right? It's same thing. I think it really has to be. No one's gonna be truly, truly ready. I think at the time I was probably maybe fifty percent ready. As a leader, I was fifty percent ready. Uh, Maybe so, maybe so. But so that was that was the biggest challenge for me. But I, I I was a bit more relaxed about it than most people who were criticizing what was happening because I felt very strongly. And I'm not sure exactly where the where the confidence or the assurance came. After a couple of months, I thought, I can do this. And this is going to be okay. And, and I know, like, Karen Riedemann, who stayed with me, she was also struggling to step into her new role. And I told her, this is going to work out great. This is going to be great. Just trust me. And it's not to say there were moments where I forgot my name in a meeting, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or the property address, um, for sure. Because I, I definitely felt like, you know, I, I was pretending to be a leader that I wasn't. I was pretending to fit into that position, and I wasn't really ready. I felt that way, and that was that was my honest feeling at the time. And but like I, but and then also the the scrutiny within the peers within the company was. That was a lot of pressure, but I, I grew up to not think too deeply about what others think because they're probably not thinking that deeply about you anyway. So, so focus on yourself and just keep doing what you're doing, um, which is what I did. And thankfully, within the first three years of us starting the team, I had a partner named Nat, Karen was a partner at the time, the three of us, all three of us made top 10 brokers within the first three years. So, uh, yeah, so it, it was it was interesting because there was a moment I'm going to overshare. Um, there was a moment where we had like a corporate psychiatrist who came and, you know, asked everybody within Cushman, like, what, what's the biggest complaint you have? A lot of them. This was like my first year, my first year as the as the leader. And a lot of people were like, oh, I wish the investment sales team was stronger. They just started and they're kind of weak, you know? And I think that I could see Nat and Karen's face like cringing. You know, they're just like not that happy. And a lot of people said that before it was my turn to speak. And then the microphone came to me and I said, I am just so proud of how much we have achieved given how little experience we are. We're actually winning (laughs) deals. We're actually closing deals. And I am just so thankful that we're here. We have such a strong team and I'm so thankful for the team and I'm thankful for all those people here who have helped us, you know, introduce us to their clients, show us deal leads. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you all. And of course, everybody.
0: sauces. That gratitude is right there.
1: Yeah, no. Of course, after, after that, the microphone went to the next guys and they were all like, oh, I love our investment sales team. <laughs> They're so great. They're young and hardworking, and they're so focused and determined, and they're going to make it. We, we should support them more, you know. So that, that was, that's what happened after. Um, and then in 2015, uh, Cushman was being purchased by DTZ, and our team got approached by seven different firms at the time to see whether we want to make a move. And I told them, no, I, I plan to retire here at Cushman. This is where I grew up. You know, I'm marrying my first boyfriend. This is it, you know? Right. And then a lot of things happened, which I can't really go into uh, when DTC was going to buy Cushman and there was also other things that were happening. And, you know, I heard from my team, like, oh, we should should keep talking. We should keep talking to other groups, you know? So we were interviewed by a bunch of groups. We got a lot of offers. We ultimately decided to go with Meridian Capital because of the people. The people who are recruiting us. And, and and that's what I think it is. Yes, it's about the brand for sure. The power of brand you can't ignore. Um, but ultimately, when you have a deal, it's about the people. Are the people going to take care of it? Are they going to be determined to see it through? Are they going to go fight, and fight for the last penny? And the people that I met, which was Ralph Hershka, uh, Yoni Goodman, they were so persistent <laughs> in, in tracking us. And then we had so many meetings, so many meetings. And they they also dug in very, very into detail about the productions we had, who procured the deal, um, how it was executed. And I thought I loved that. I was like, they were doing their full due diligence. They're doing their you know, rectal examination here. And I love that. I thought that was so great. And I was thinking, why aren't other people doing that? Why are they just telling us come and do whatever you want? And that's right. the business plan we want to support. Yes. I don't want that. I want it to be collaborative. I want it to work. I want it to work long term and be sustainable. So, so ultimately we took a vote, the team took a vote, and we all voted Meridian. So we joined Meridian. Yeah, we joined Meridian in 2015 which in some people's perspective might have been a little risky because they didn't they never had investment sales team. But they had an incredible um, financing brokerage division, um, which was basically number one or number two each year in terms of volume, in terms of number of deals. Um, and then and the, the, the connections they have in New York City market was just unmatched. If you just look at their volume in New York City, you add number two, three, four, five together, and they still cannot beat Meridian. It's incredible. Wow. And we were thinking, what's their secret sauce? Like, how are they doing this? So we were really curious. Um, so that's why we joined and we've been here since. Excellent. Well, can you tell us what
0: the secret sauce is?
1: I would say there are a lot of secret sauces. Um I think one is the leaders of the group. So we have these Monday morning meetings where the top producers of the company get together, and Rav Hershka he hosts it, and it's very much about deals, it's very much about deals. But the struggles that each person has, struggles they're having, you know, with this deal and that deal, and they're sharing that in an open platform, and then they're getting advice from other colleagues so to me like for for us to have had that type of meeting at Cushman nationally like everybody getting together like that that would have been very difficult and to have happened, it would probably be maybe on a quarterly basis max this was happening every single week every single Monday eight o'clock on the dot like and there were real um, lessons that you could take away from Know, how some people were being creative with deal structuring or the tenacity somebody, you know, uh, demonstrated through a deal. It was just something that we all started our week with that, with that, with that coaching by Ralph. And, and to me, that was really, really, to me, that was the first secret sauce that I saw. Yeah, that's
0: and that feels unique to me in, in an organization is. where people are trying to kind of eat a little bit more of what they kill. That people would spend that hour, they would feel like it's worth putting in the time for others to get back from it. So that
1: yeah. that's for sure. For sure. That, 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 was that was shocking.
0: Ultra booster, right? Yes, absolutely. And so, if somebody listening wanted to become the next Helen, what would you what would you recommend that they do if they're Still in school or just getting out of school.
1: I would say, become the next you. Don't become the next Helen, because <laughs> you're probably gonna be much better as yourself. That's by the way. That's I only mentioned that because um, when I first started um, and I was leading the team, I felt very compelled to behave certain way, you know, and speak certain way, because um, that's that was my idea of what a leader looks like and how right. that's how a leader speaks. And I remember Arthur Moranti came to me after a meeting and and he said, you know, you're really fantastic as you. Yeah, you don't have to be like them. You could be just like yourself. And that's something that I still live by. I still, I don't think that I'm your typical investment sales broker in many ways. Um, And my approach is probably very different than everybody else as well. But that's, that's me. And I'm best when I'm me. So anyway. <laughs> I love that. Bringing yeah. your self is
0: is so important because I agree so many people just think this is what I'm supposed to do and then it just doesn't feel comfortable, right? It's yes. easy to be yourself. So yes.
1: Yeah. That
0: that's incredible. Well, I also want to touch a little bit on on ULI and in particular one thing that you're doing which I am just so super jazzed about is the the think tank yes. for for the Sustainability, ESG, Council, Committee, whatever it is, I would sure. love to hear a little bit more about
1: that. Yeah, I'm glad you asked because it's something that I'm pretty passionate about. Um, so, back in February of 2020, through ULI, um, I coordinated, along with Steve Cohen, who's my good friend at Cushman and Wayfield still, um, he and I coordinated a pow, like power breakfast. Um, and we invited the top executive from some of the largest companies of, you know, New York real estate, and we started having sort of an open, closed door dialogues about what are your biggest concerns, and the resounding um, voice was, we're really concerned about the lack of communication between us and the policymakers, and the policy changes that are taking place without our input, and you know how that impacts the real estate business overall including tenants so we sort of took that away and said well what can we do about it what can we do so steve and i thought about creating a policy think tank that is non um not not really political it's not a lobbyist group it's really nonpartisan, and we wanted to do we wanted to create a group that can bridge that conversation bridge the gap in understanding so that we can have a more positive and sustainable policy changes with our input, with tenants' input. So that's the goal. So the topic doesn't only surround, um, it's not only around the sustainability side, but it's also about affordable housing, local laws, zoning, everything that deals with policy. Our first year, because this is our first year, we wanted to learn how to walk before we do anything, so we chose sustainability because one, it's urgent because local law 97 is right there. And a lot of people are having difficulty even understanding what the law says, let alone what to do after understanding it. So we felt that there's a real need. And the goal is for us to become a resource, not only to um, the policymakers, but also to middle markets owners, condo and co-op boards, so that If they're struggling to understand it, then we can make this easy for them to understand it. And then also the policymakers understand that we're pushing their agenda forward, that we are for change, but we're also going to be providing feedback back to them from the middle market owners on what is working and what is not working. Um, So, so that's something that we started this year and we're happy to say like we're actually working on something which is going to be local 97 guideline that's going to walk through one, what does the law say and how much penalty are you paying? If any, two, what are the prescriptive pathways and what, what can you do? What are, what are things that you can take on and what do you fix and where do you go to even find these resources? And then three, um, we're going to be describing, you know, a lot of the financing and capital available to, to the middle markets owners also. And then and ultimately be able to showcase the bad, the worst, you know, and good and the best case studies on what works and what's not, what's not working so that people have a deeper understanding of what it is. Like I've attended so many of these like sustainability conferences and walked away thinking, wow, sustainability people just speak sustainability. Like, right. Regular. Regular. English. Like they don't speak regular, you know, real estate. So I remember I went to one conference and then one gentleman raised his hand and said, yeah, but like, what is that per per square foot? (laughs) And I was like, yes, yes, you're right. (laughs) And nobody could translate it. They're like, well, it depends on, you know, and then they started speaking sustainability again. And I was like, well, this is like, this is like relearning English, you know?
0: You're never going to get there if everyone's, you know, you've kind of created like Policy for dummies, right? In exactly. a way that's That's exactly it. Might, if people are afraid of it, they don't want to adhere to it. They don't yeah. want to do with it. They're just like, that sounds expensive and like something that I don't need.
1: Yeah. And I think that the mentality of real estate owners and policymakers, a lot of it is the sort of that toxic relationship in the past, or maybe it still exists, <laughs> but but some of that gap of understanding. I think that, you know, we all have to sort of give a little bit, right? I think a lot of the peers that I speak to, especially within ULI, they all agree change is necessary, right? But we can do it in a way that's more sustainable. We can do it in a way that's more positive and more impactful. Um, So I think that's what we're trying to get to. I love that. Well,
0: on behalf of... Of all the real estate community, I say thank you for doing that because it's it's a heavy lift, and
1: in some regards, perhaps thankless. But yeah, it, it is a lot of work, and and um, there are so many think tank members who are sustainability experts that that are owed that credit, and I'm I'm the layman that comes and says I don't I still don't get it, you know.
0: <laughs> but that's what they need. They need yeah. the layman. They're saying that I don't get it, so that they can explain it in yeah. a way that you know we get it.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Well, so now we're getting to the point of the summer where it shouldn't be that hot, but it actually is. (laughs) So, Are you ready for the hot seat?
1: Oh, sure.
2: The hot seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services, which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofit startups and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities reduce turnover and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe it doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, So please check them out at kkreset.com, K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. Let's
1: do
0: it. Excellent, excellent. Okay, so first question is, do you have a book or podcast recommendation?
1: Oh, that's very easy, and it's going to be somewhat self-serving. So I have a podcast. You do? (laughs) I do have a podcast called Ask Life, which is um, a podcast that tries to bring the teachings of the Bible into everyday world so practical application and a lot of it is like my career too i have a co-host named ron who just started reading the bible so you know he has a different perspective than me who's been reading it for some time and you know how sometimes we feel like we go to church or we go to synagogue or we go to our different institutions and walk away not like nothing really translates into our everyday lives we feel kind of holy when we're there and then then we leave right but right. how do we carry that with us how do we how do we carry that teaching with us into everything we do so that's what it's about but in outside of my podcast i would say i am a big true crime podcast fan oh, so I-, I listen to just about every podcast you can think of yeah tell
0: me the name of your podcast
1: ask life ask like yeah. You know what?
0: I love that. And, I, you know, it's interesting because I feel like what you did with the policy is almost similar to what you're doing here, where you're like, okay, let me bring somebody in who's starting from the beginning, yeah. who can really poke holes and ask the questions so that you can answer them in a way that, you know, comes down to a, to a novice level. I love that.
1: Precisely. And that's, that's our approach to everything in life. You know, so like who, who you are that. in your career, who you are as, you know, a, a mother, who you are as a daughter, who you are, that, that should all be sort of in sync, right? It should, it should be all in sync. You shouldn't be a different person when you're doing a deal versus when you're at home, right?
0: Back to being a, your authentic self. I love at that. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to that on my way home today. So tell me a little bit about your most memorable
1: deal. Oh, Wow. The funny thing is, this is like with everything in life, I'm sure the most memorable ones are the ones that are always very difficult, right? The right. easy ones you don't really really remember. Um, I would say it's probably the American Bible Society headquarters sale. That one is probably the most memorable one. And this one, this is uh, uh, right in front of 15 CPW 1865 Broadway, which is now a beautiful a condo project built by Avalon Bay, who purchased that, uh, the land from us. But American Bible Society was um, thinking about relocating their headquarters. So they wanted to sell the headquarters and then relocate to somewhere in this country. They didn't know where. Somewhere in the country. The assignment was sale of the headquarters and leasing, like leasing assignment. Right. And then and, and negotiating all the benefits with the town or the city or the county, wherever you were, they were going to go to. And they hadn't really limited any like the location. So, so it was a pretty big, big assignment. We didn't even know about the assignment. So one of my colleagues, Heather Sloan, came to me and said, I think they're thinking about selling that. And then so we went to uh, a gentleman by the name of Steve King, who was at American Bible Society and said, can we also participate in this broker right contest? And he said, well, we are already interviewing like three groups and we kind of are, have our favorite. So if you come in now, it's going to be a little like, you know, I'm just telling you maybe wasting your time. Was, well, it's my time I'm wasting. I'm happy to waste it. No problem. Right. Yeah. yeah. So So he said, okay. And we went back, we created this thick booklet with all our, you know, track record and our ideas and whatnot and we submitted it and we followed up with steve king afterwards and said hey so so what do you think well you're still number four out of four (laughs) he's like oh that's not not good good. (laughs) that doesn't sound good and then they said well we're going to do in-person presentation and we really don't think you have to be there and and i said again it's my time we're racing please please let us pitch this and um they finally said okay you know what Okay, the board members will be there. What's another hour? So go ahead and pitch it. So we go in there as four out of four, right? Oh. <laughs> and then, and then um, so I was assigned the, the, ma- the, the main MC of the, of the presentation. And we killed it. We killed it. We just rocked it. So I called Steve King after and said, how do you do? And I was, oh, you guys are top two
0: okay on. number
1: three four and then we're like one of the you're one of the top two and then they said um so we need some references from your prior clients and i'm thinking "Oh, the other group is going to have like amazing references too so we gave ours and then we speak to them after so what do you think said, well based on these references you walk on water and this is american <laughs> bible society joke <laughs> <laughs> and, and then they said we think we're going to go with you And we're like, what? So it was an incredible win because it was literally like the underdog taking it over. And that was such a, you know, such a feel good moment. So Heather and I were just dancing up and down, really, really excited. And then we went to to the market because that's when it starts, right? Now the assignment is there. Now you have to go do it we were met with a lot of resistance because this is at a time where all the expensive condominiums, their pricing was starting to come down. And there were so many articles about like, oh, the the luxury condos, is there a demand for these, you know? And, and, you know, it was very, very discouraging. We're getting emails from our investors saying, you will never hit $1,000 per square foot, which is what we needed, what we wanted. And it was a big struggle. And ultimately how we sold it was, I went to several retail investors and sold them on this idea of buying a, the retail condominium to be built there. It's like, what if you submit an offer right now and we can, we can sell it to you and then you can close on it upon delivery of that retail condo? And we got a, such a big price for it so that most of the residential investors thought, the residential square footage basis is so reasonable. We should be able to do this, you know? So that's how we sold it to Avalon Bay. And there were so many nights where we, we were like, can we really sell this? Can we really do this? Because it was, we had a very long first round because we couldn't get that many investors. And then the investors that came along, you know, it was, it was there's negative news after negative news. And we were just really, really struggling. And when we finally sold it, we actually got to present before American Bible Society. We all got very teary-eyed because we knew how difficult it was. There were four members of American Bible Society that were in charge of the sale, and they were also as nervous about the transaction as we were because the market was changing every day. Right. Um, and then, and then, but the, the immense pressure I felt was really about having to deliver for them. They need the money. They have to relocate. People are already moving. They're already moving out of New York. <laughs> and and then we finally um, identified their new headquarters in Philly. And they're there now, very happily. And I visited them a couple of times already. Um, and they're good friends still. Like the, the chairperson of the board uh, at American Bible Society, he and I still text to this day, like a really good friend of mine. Every time he's in the city, we always grab lunch or dinner. I love that. Great friends, though. That was definitely, yeah, I think so. That's a
0: great story. Yeah. So, shifting gears a little bit, I'm sure you've hired many people in your career here. What do you look for in somebody when you, if if somebody wanted
1: to join your team or was
0: trying to, is there something specific that you look for?
1: Sure. So, obviously, like by the time they come to see me, they've already, pass the test. So we have a skills test, Excel test, Argus test, and writing test. And by the time they come to me, I know that they're at least somewhat qualified technically to be able to get the job. So obviously you have to have the substance, right? Are you qualified? And I think that's why when you're younger, you have to really focus on building that substance in you, right? So I always tell them, go to a shop. There's a lot of volume, a lot of deals because the repetition is gonna what's gonna build that experience and expertise so do that so substance is what we look for first but by the time again by the time they come to me i know they have that what i look for is somebody who's honest so i'll ask tough questions and i know what the prototypical answers would be <laughs> for people who just you know came to interview but people who give the honest answer that's who i really like because ultimately i always tell them i want somebody i can trust. So meaning whether I'm in the office, whether I'm not in the office, I know that they're doing what they're supposed to do and they'll raise their hand if something went wrong and if, there, if a mistake was made, they'll own up to it. I, I really need that. I also need people to keep confidential things confidential because a lot of our clients trust us with a lot of the confidential data that they don't want leaked out, right? So to me, it's a lot about the trust because a lot of the other skill sets, Knowing where I came from, I know can be taught. Right. I
0: love that. So uh, last question, and then I'm going to let you go enjoy the rest of this, uh, the last bits of summer. Thank you. What mentors have you had? And I know we've, you've named a few along the way, but any, any in particular that have really
1: had the most impact on you? It's definitely my dad, my dad and my mom. Um, I go to my dad and knowing he's going to always disagree with me. But I always want to understand why, you know, and sometimes, you know, I think age gives you that perspective, ability to see farther. Oftentimes when we're doing things within our business every day, it's so easy to be tunnel visioned, do the same thing. You know, you you think you already know what you're doing, but you never really look outside of what's typical, right? Um, So my dad gives that perspective because he's very business savvy, but also he's very life savvy. So I come to him with a lot of questions. If I'm if I'm stuck on a deal, I go to him and then he'll say, oh, did you try this or that? Um, definitely along, along the way with everything in life, career, non-career relationships, everything I've gone to him and he's always given the best advice that's always long-term oriented. So it may hurt short-term, but it always ends up being the right answer in the long run.
0: Well, without him telling you at the beginning to go for the potential, who knows what you'd be doing right now, right?
1: Yeah, that's true. That's true. Maybe I'll just be a doctor. maybe <laughs> <laughs> <Just the> doctor. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. But I, you know, knowing what I know now, I really do love my job. I feel very passionate about it. I love what I do. I love the complexities in our deals and deal structuring we're like we're like known as the real estate nerd team <laughs> and i and i and i love it
0: i mean everybody knows your name and what you're doing and so you've you've gone for the potential your loyalty your honesty all the different things that you've done have certainly added up to you building a career that is definitely one that people aspire to have so oh that's so nice
1: you. Thank you so much for saying that. I really appreciate that. You're welcome.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I can't wait to listen to your podcast now.
1: (laughs) Yes.